I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Will Haygood on the line. His new book is Showdown, Thurgood Marshall and the Supreme Court Nomination that Changed America. Will, I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you. Great to be here. So what initially drew you to Thurgood Marshall as the subject of a book? Uh, well, um, as one who was born in the Seminole year of 1954, which was when the Brown v. Board of Education school desegregation decision came down, um, as you're growing older, uh, if you were born in that year, 1954, it always weighs on your mind. You heard about it in junior high and high school and in college, and uh, I sort of always knew that I wanted to, uh, once I became a, a serious nonfiction writer, that I always wanted to circle back to 1954 and find a way into the Third Grid Marshall story, but I have this nonlinear hunger to tell nonfiction stories, so I needed sort of a hook, a sideways to go into the story. And since no one had written about his uh, very contentious 1967 confirmation hearings, I thought that that was my hook. And so that's what I focused on. It seems amazing that no one's ever written about it before because it was such a big deal. Yes, I I think that... um, uh, since Marshall was the first African American to get onto the Supreme Court, that became the story in most of the uh, uh, nonfiction narratives. Uh, they wanted to focus on uh, his period on the Supreme Court since he had reached the legal mountaintop. Um, uh, what did he do once he had reached that mountaintop? Uh, and so I think that became a magnet for nonfiction writers. Uh, but uh, that wasn't my way into the Marshall story. Uh, uh, he was in the Senate hearing room for five days, stretched across 14 days. And um, before Thurgood Marshall, the, the hearings for a Supreme Court nominee at the most, had lasted one day. Mm. So his were five days stretched out over 14 days, and uh, and the most powerful people on the Senate Judiciary Committee were Southern segregationists who loathed Marshall because of the 1954 school decision that changed, in theory, the face of the South. So tell us uh, about this contentious time. Uh, what was it like right there during those 14 days? Uh, tell us some of the, uh, the the people who were uh, really arguing against Thurgood Marshall. Yes, well, uh, first of all, the uh, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee was James Eastland of Mississippi. And he had uh, said many times before the hearing started that Thurgood Marshall was, to him, public enemy number one. Uh, and so this this senator is now the one setting the tone of the hearings. And the second most powerful person on that committee was Senator 
John McClellan of Arkansas. And where did the first uh, visceral reaction to the 1954 school case take place? In Little Rock, when the nine uh, black students tried to integrate Central High School. So the Arkansas senator saw that all uh, um, all a spark from what Thurgood Marshall had done. And then you had Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, who had run on the Dixiecrat ticket in 1948 uh, for the White House. Uh, and so you had these powerful segregationists who were hell-bent on stopping the good marshal. Um, you had Lyndon Johnson, Southern-born president, who was... Um, uh, strongly intent on integrating the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and you had anti-Vietnam protests going on in the streets. Uh, you had uh, many blacks upset uh, that the 1964 civil rights bill wasn't being strongly enacted in the Deep South. Uh, and there's still... Uh, were problems with the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Um, there were still threats against people in the South. And now, all of a sudden, you have this surprise announcement from President Johnson that he's going to nominate Thurgood Marshall to the high court. Johnson did not let it leak out. Uh, there really was no opening on the court. Uh, Johnson had, uh, had uh, enticed... Uh, Associate Justice Tom Clark to step aside. Johnson had known Clark, fellow Texan, for years, and uh, Johnson encouraged him to leave the court. Uh, it's a lifetime appointment, and Associate Justice Clark was not sick. He had not told his family that he was going to step down, uh, but uh, um, uh, but he was encouraged to. And uh, we all know that. Uh, LBJ um, uh, was a very domineering figure, and uh, he had a lot of admiration for Thurgood Marshall, and he wanted him on the high court. You know, I'd never heard that about um, Tom Clark deciding to step down in in a sense before his time. Do do we have any mm-hmm. idea what was what was going on with him beyond Johnson kind of strong arming him? Um, yes. Tom Clark's son was Ramsey Clark, and uh, LBJ wanted to move Ramsey Clark into the position of attorney general. Uh, But he knew that there was going to be a a conflict of interest, uh, so to say, uh, if he had uh, uh, Tom Clark still on the bench. Uh, and so it, it, um, LBJ appealed to Associate Justice Tom Clark from the father-son angle. Now, look, I know you want your boy mm-hmm. to become attorney general, but I can't do it as long as you're sitting on the court. And if you step down, actually, um, I think that would be a wonderful thing. Uh, you and your wife will be uh, very proud of him. 
uh, and it'll be a great thing for uh, for everybody concerned. Um, and it just so happens that uh, Tom Clark and his wife were sent on an around-the-world fact-finding mission uh, on behalf of the White House. And so it was like a tour that they had fun Hmm. going on this around-the-world trip. So I want to pull back just a little bit. I mean, throughout the book, you use flashbacks of uh, Marshall's life to, to kind of tell of his rise. So, so to talk a little bit about his childhood. Uh, yes, uh, born in, uh, in very segregated uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Um, uh, parents, uh, mother, school teacher, father was a uh, waiter. They really wanted their two sons to go to college um, and to strive. And uh, Marshall went to Lincoln Lincoln University. And uh, when he came out, uh, he went to Howard University Law School. Uh, he wasn't a serious student. When he was at Lincoln, uh, he played around a lot, but he was one of those kind of students. He could play around and, and spend a lot of time having fun and still get straight A's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at Howard, uh, at Howard University Law School, uh, he graduated first in his class, um, and uh, he loved the law. Uh, he, uh, uh, when he was 19 years old uh, in his hometown, uh, he had a, a summer job working in a hat store, and. Uh, he was on one of the trolley cars, and the trolley car driver told him to go to the back where blacks were supposed to stand. And Marshall had these hats mm-hmm. uh, uh, from the store, and he said, Sir, I can't move back there because there are so many people in these hats will fall, and, and they might get smashed. And, uh, and there was an argument, and Thurgood was arrested. Uh, he was 19 uh, for not moving to the back of the bus, you might say. And the store owner came down, and uh, he got Thurgood Marshall out of jail. But uh, that was a real turning point for Marshall. Um, and so after law school, uh, uh, he worked. Um, as a fledgling lawyer, and then after two years of being out of law school, uh, he went to New York City and joined the NAACP. Uh, and looking around the country, uh, he was traveling a lot, uh, filing state lawsuits, federal lawsuits, lawsuits on behalf of of blacks uh, uh, in the arenas of voting, uh, jobs, and crime. I mean, just the whole array of um, of, uh, of, of rights that were being uh, denied blacks. And uh, uh, so Marshall was sort of like this vaudeville figure, always on the road. I mean, he stayed on the road filing suits in Mississippi, in Louisiana, in Texas. So he came up with this idea. He said, um, 
Because what I need to do is is form a legal unit of the NAACP, and that way we'll be nonpartisan. Uh, we can raise money, and we can foul lawsuits all over this nation uh, because his ultimate goal was to uh, knock asunder, uh, was to destroy Plessy v. Ferguson, which was, you know, which was the law that said separate was equal. And so Marshall established the NAACP Legal Defense and, and Educational Fund and uh, that was his mission. He came up with this mission that I will find top-flight lawyers, black and white lawyers, women and men throughout the country, and uh, they will let me know uh, which cases are important in which lawsuits we should file. And uh, he will let some people uh, uh, do a lot of the advance work, and then he will go in there with his star power. And uh, uh, he had some seminal victories uh, in front of the Supreme Court in uh, 1944, uh, Smith v. Allwright, which, and this is an important case because Smith v. Allwright uh, was the Texas Democratic primary case, and uh, blacks have been forbidden to vote in it. But Marshall won. In the case called Smith v. Allwright, he took it to the Supreme Court and he won. So blacks now could vote in the Democratic primary. One of the people who they voted for in large numbers in 1958 was the young U.S. Senator Lyndon B. Johnson. And Lyndon B. Johnson knew uh, that he would always be in debt to Thurgood Marshall because of that, of that case. Uh, and there was another case, uh, Sweat v. Painter, which Thurgood Marshall uh, sued to integrate the University of Texas Law School. Shelley v. Kramer, a famous housing case. And, of course, uh, his titanic victory, the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education case. That was a case that made Thurgood Marshall famous. And in 1955, he landed on the cover of Time magazine. But he had done many other famous things before then. Uh, uh, he had survived death threats throughout the South. He kept going back. He was very brave. Um, really, it, it is a remarkable story. And so then one day in 1967, he comes face-to-face -face in Senate hearing room 2228, in the U.S. Senate office building, he comes face to face with the most powerful men in the U.S. Senate. And these were the men who hated his guts. And so uh, in that room, uh, history started to swirl. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. 
Welcome back. We're talking with Will Haygood, author of Showdown, Thurgood Marshall, and the Supreme Court nomination that changed America. So you've got me on the edge of my seat here, uh, wanting to know what happened with with this face-off between this incredibly talented, experienced attorney, obviously entirely qualified to sit on the court, and these men who really wanted to keep him off of it. Yes, yes. Um, It was a... Uh, well, it was a showdown, and that is the title of the book. One of the things that frightened the White House after the first day of hearings, uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson said, uh-oh, Thurgood's in trouble. And Lyndon Johnson uh, went behind the scenes and um, started talking to another African-American attorney, William Coleman. Uh, uh, who I interviewed, uh, he's in his 90s now, sharp, still sharp, uh, and uh, he was summoned secretly to the White House, and he was told by the White House staff, look, Thurgood might not make it. Uh, these people are really digging in, uh, um, and he might not make it, uh, and we need you to tell us that you are willing to become an alternate. Now, William Coleman had been one of the young attorneys who had worked on the Brown uh, school case uh, uh, in 1954. Uh, Actually, they had started working on that case as far back as 1951. But William Coleman said, oh, my goodness, Um, look, uh, I love Thurgood. Uh, He's the giant. Uh, He should be on the court. He's qualified. Um, uh, But uh, I wouldn't feel right. Uh, for you to uh, nominate me if he uh, if he doesn't make it, uh, I want you to keep working at this uh, very hard, and I will do my best as a Republican attorney who happens to be black. I will do my best to to try to convince senators across the aisle and both parties uh, to support Marshall. Uh, but one of the tricky things is that James Eastland of Mississippi uh, would never tell uh, Marshall over the White House at the end of each day if it was the end of the hearings or not. Uh, they would have to wait until the middle of the night or till early the next morning at 7 o'clock or so to get word from him uh, the hearings will resume uh, this morning at 10 a.m., report to room 2228. And that was done to keep Marshall and the White House staff nervous. Uh, and uh, uh, Eastland allowed no witnesses uh, for Marshall. Uh, he, uh, he just didn't. Uh, and Strom Thurmond uh, started talking about interracial uh, marriages. Uh, and Strom Thurmond uh, knew that Thurgood Marshall's wife uh, was uh, of uh, Filipino descent. And so Strom Thurmond had uh, brought interracial marriage into the hearing room. Uh, this is the same Strom Thurmond who had uh, fathered a child uh, uh, with his uh uh, black maid with the family's black maid, of course, in 1967. Uh, no one knew about that. Um, and so the hearings 
went on and Marshall by the third day was getting very upset, not knowing if he was going to make it. But one of the things that was great was that Phil Hart, Senator from Michigan, who was a uh, staunch liberal, uh, a very passionate man, uh, encouraged blacks everywhere to write letters to the White House uh, and to write letters to these Southern senators. And uh, the Senate was flooded with letters on behalf of um, Marshall. Uh, and uh, it started to work. Not that the Southern senators were ready to change their mind, but uh, uh, it made the White House really dig in. And the turning point was this. Lyndon Johnson, a wonderful president when it came to civil rights, got on the phone and he convinced 20 Southern senators not to vote on the day of the vote in the full Senate. Now, that's a radical thing because senators go to Washington to vote. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's their job. But LBJ said, look, uh, you know, there's a dam that you want built next year. I might not be able to find the money for it if you don't vote for my man. It was horse trading. It was playing chess of the highest order. And um, those 20 senators uh, didn't leave their house that day. It's just amazing. They did not vote. Um, and uh, But it's still, I mean... In the end, it was 62 to 11, which seems close, but not uh, from the arcane rules of the Senate. Because if the uh, Southerners had have, um, had have stopped the White House at 60, they would, that meant that they could uh, start a uh, filibuster, uh, which would have uh, talked the Marshall nomination to death. So, so in the end, the Southerners were only a few votes shy from a filibuster. And so it was a nail-biter right down to the end. And, uh, and riots erupted uh, throughout the South and in uh, Detroit, Michigan, on the last day of the hearings. Um, and so it was all full of drama and um uh, but Marshall, uh, he made it onto the court. Really fascinating story. And 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 Thurgood Marshall is just one of uh, similar subject of biographies you've written. I mean, you've written books on some of those influential, in some cases, misunderstood African-Americans. You have Adam, Adam Clayton Powell, Sugar Ray Robinson, and, of course, one of my personal favorites, Sammy Davis Jr. What what draws you to, to, to such figures? Wonderful question. I... I I just see uh, such drama uh, in their stories. Uh, uh, They each uh, fought hard to convince America uh, that uh, I am as red, white, and blue as anybody. Um, Each one of those, me and Sugar Ray Robinson, Sammy Davis Jr., uh, Congressman Powell, and Thurgood Marshall, they each had to fight in the public eye to be respected, and um, I think that I think that that drove them. Uh, that gave them an edge, 
uh, it added to their talents. Those are hard journeys, but those kind of journeys uh, make for good storytelling if you're a uh, nonfiction writer. I mean, there's a lot of meat uh, on the bones of each of those lies. And Marshall was the supreme of all of them. He was the supreme. No Marshall, uh, no laws that were changed. Uh, uh, and there's something uh, uh, very magisterial about each of those journeys. Uh, and um, and it's been it's been a a remarkable quartet uh, of stories to tell in these four books. I told a real little story about this uh, White House butler, uh, Eugene Allen, and it's very poignant to me that on the day of uh, Burger Marshall's nomination at the White House, one of the butlers who was working uh, and who served Thurgood Marshall and the other people in the White House happened to be Eugene Allen. And I think about that often. Allen worked in the White House for eight presidents, and he could not have envisioned a Thurgood Marshall when he first started working under Harry Truman. And so now... All these years later, here he is staring at the very man who worked to change uh, his life. By telling these stories that I've told, I really think um, that I've told the story of this country mm. and, and used them as uh, spokeswheels, as the, as the swirling uh, wheel, an uh, entertainer, a politician, a sports figure and the lawyer. That's the four corners. And of course, you have the butler, who's kind of the, <laughs> in ways, the uh, the hub <laughs> for, right. for at least a couple of them. And of course, we're referring to your book, The Butler, A Witness to History, which was also the basis for the movie uh, of the same uh, title. Um, yep. I, I do want to ask, how did you come across Eugene Allen? Was this during your uh, research uh, for, the, uh, for the for showdown? Uh, no, I was uh, I was working on the staff of the Washington Post in in 2008, and I was covering uh, I was covering the campaign of uh, Senator Obama, and I was in North Carolina at one of his rallies. He was down in the polls, and Hillary Clinton uh, Senator Hillary Clinton was still in the race. Uh, he was battling it out with her. Anyway, I was at this rally, and I walked outside. And there were three young ladies, and they were crying. And I asked them if there was anything I could do because they had been inside of the rally. And they said, uh, no, we're crying because our fathers have kicked us out of our homes because we support that candidate inside on stage. And they were three young white ladies, uh, mm -hmm. white, uh, white college students, and, of course, He's black, and um, it was a very emotional story for me uh, listening to them uh, because they were uh, they were so courageous. Uh, their fathers had thrown them out of their homes because they wanted to support this African American candidate. And I said to myself, 
right then and there, I said, Obama's going to win because that's a movement right there. And I just went out on a limb and, and I told my editor, I said, hey, uh, he's going to win. And my editor said, no, nah, no, he's not. Uh, he's going to make a good showing, but he's not going to win. And I said, no, 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 he's going to win. And I want to find somebody from the pages of history, somebody who worked in the White House before the 1964 Civil Rights Bill was passed. And I want to do a story about their life. And I, and I told my editor, I said, it can be somebody who worked in the White House laundry room or in the Rose Garden, or it could be a maid. And the this last words just dripped out of my mouth. I said, or it can be a butler. Hmm. And I don't even know why to this day why I said that. I, 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 I just did. Uh, and I went searching uh, for such a person, and somebody told me there was a man by the name of uh, Eugene Allen, who had worked for two presidents, maybe three, at the White House in the 60s. Well, they were wrong. When I, when I finally tracked him down, um, he told me his life story, and he had actually worked for eight presidents, eight, from Harry Truman oh to Ronald Reagan. And, wow. and uh, uh, he had never told his story. He lived in Washington, D.C., on a little quiet street in a humble home with his wife. And uh, I interviewed him uh, on the Friday before the election uh, in 2008. Spent the whole day with he and his wife. They took me, uh, he took me down the basement uh, where he had a room that was like a miniature Smithsonian. It had all of these White House artifacts. He had a Stetson hat from Lyndon Johnson. He had a tie from Mrs. Kennedy that her husband had been wearing the day before he was assassinated. Uh, he had um, five or 6,000 photographs from White House dinners, state dinners, events that he had worked. It was just astonishing. Uh, and I said to him, Mr. Allen, you mean to tell me that nobody has ever told your life story? And uh, he took a step closer to me, and he put his arm on my shoulder, and he said, well, if you think I'm worthy, you'll be the first. And I nearly got a tear in my eye. I mean, this man who had uh, worked at the White House, never missed a day of work in 34 years, the snow or the riots or, or weather, never missed a single day. Uh, he worked at 1600 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, the most powerful address in the world. And he could go back home to his native Virginia in the 50s and couldn't try on a suit in the store because of the color of his skin. And yet he went back to work every day. He believed in his country more than his country sometimes believed in him. Uh, and that's the genuine beauty of that story. Uh, so I interviewed him on a Friday. The election is the following Tuesday, but the day before the election, I call him and his wife to say hello and to see how the photo assignment that I had set up went for them. And he said, she's gone. And I said, excuse me? He said, my wife, she's gone. And I said, uh, she's gone where, Mr. Allen? He said, she died last night. 
huh. in her sleep. And uh, it was just, I mean, she died the day before the election. And it was heartbreaking. I mean, they had been married 65 years. And uh, so the story appeared on the front page of the Washington Post. And the uh, 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 transition team of the new administration uh, saw it, and they invited Mr. Allen uh, to the inauguration. He had a VIP seat, and I went with him. And uh, when he saw the first African-American take the oath of office, he leaned over to me, and he said, I worked... 34 years at the White House, and this is the first inauguration that I've ever been invited to. Yeah. And so it's, uh, it's a nice circle, you might say, you know, uh, sitting there with him and, 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 and watching, watching history like that. So he was a figure of history himself. We've been talking with Will Haygood, and I wish we could keep talking all day. These stories are wonderful, but you can find much more in his book, Showdown, which is in stores right now. Will, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fantastic. It was an honor, and thank both of you. Thank you, Will. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about how the Authors Guild is changing. Stay tuned.